Thanks again, worship team. If you're new here, a special welcome to you. We've been walking and weaving our way through the Sermon on the Mount, this incredible sermon that Jesus sat and taught the crowd. And it's just so rich and at times even for me as I've been studying, just so convicting and challenging personally. But we're in chapter 6, verse 25, and we're going to put that on the screen and we're going to begin by reading the text for this morning. Uh, this morning. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not more valuable than they? And which of you, being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the, the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself, and sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Now, I don't know if you realize that we, we closed last week looking with about money. And there's a connection here, but just kind of to drive home a point here first, on, on really on last week's issue, uh, we'll just have a little video clip for you this morning. pocketbook says, my money is the key to happiness. It's the key to power. It's the key to peace. It's the key to success. It's the key to capitalism. It's the key to producing purpose. And it's the key to finding love. That's my money. I wonder, do you know it? My money is a supreme money. No debased deceiver can debunk it by power. It puts bread on the table, it makes me feel stable. It's the core of consumerism. It is beyond criticism. It has no euphemisms. Do you know it? It wakes me up in the morning and it keeps me up at night. It is the reward that I hoard. It dictates my day. It divides my attention. It's the big Benjamin. It's the cherished cheese. It's the green gravy. It's the lean lettuce. I wonder if you know it today. It has motivated every great person in all of mankind. It is incorruptible. It is indestructible. It is the translation of technology. It is the prescription of the powerful. It makes my heart appease. And it's the only thing that puts me at ease. Do I want more of it? Yes, please. I wish I could describe it to you yet. It's uncomfortable. It's uncontrollable. You can't get it out of your mind. You can't get it without demand. Without it, you can't get by. You can't buy 
without it. The world can't function without it and it lasts for all eternity. Yes, yes, uh, that's my money. Go ahead and clap your hand if you need to, because that's my money. That's my money. Kind of pointed. We left last week with this verse, and let me put that on the screen, verse 24. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. See, the focus on money is a path that leads to a false understanding of where meaning is found in our, in our lives. But 24, that, that verse there in 24 doesn't stop. Because I don't know if you caught it in verse 25, the ESV uses this, therefore, you can't serve God in money, therefore, if you got the New American, it says, for this reason. You see, he's not really done connecting the issue of what we find in money, and he's going to really go deeper yet even. But let me point out a belief where... It, it get, it's so attractive and, and where the world wants to take us when it comes to money. And, and if you're taking notes there in the bulletin, I said it this way, what the world wants us to believe, that wealth is the key to happiness and to feeling valued and to feel secure. And here's the challenge. Way too many Christians have bought into this lie. I think it's why so many people are attracted to the word of faith, the prosperity gospel. If you don't know what that is, it's a teaching out there that's really based on a false idea that a Christian can use your faith to obtain material gain and material wealth. And at the core, it's almost commanding God that, God, you have to provide a blessing for me if I do these things. Matter of fact, here's a quote from a well-known pastor in Texas. Look at how he states it. God wants us to prosper financially, to have plenty of money to fulfill the destiny he laid out for us. That destiny contradicts, though, the destiny of Christ. The cross, his suffering, and even the disciples who he was preparing to go after he left this world. See, Jesus is wanting his disciples, this crowd, and us to go to a different place. And just picture this. Here, here's a crowd of, of literally thousands of people, and I'm guessing that the disciples would have been up front, and he's telling him and really going after his disciples, saying the uselessness, guys, of treasuring anything other than God himself. Don't put your stock in the stuff in this world. And then he goes on to explain even more, though. Look at verse 25 here. Let me put that on the screen. Therefore, I tell you, therefore, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body and what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Now let me give you the first point if you're filling in the notes there. I said it this way, the key truth here, money can never buy a secure life. Do we realize that? 
And when you pause and you go, what are the things that money never really can buy? Pain, sickness. Uh, you think of people with cancer, with Alzheimer's, our bodies breaks down, the heart wears out. Now, now it's true that money can maybe buy better health care. But as I look back and as I was thinking through this, I remember my dad getting Alzheimer's at 63. And the dream that he was had and how he wanted to buy a trailer and in the wintertime he wanted to go south. They didn't like the cold winters. And he did it one time. And Alzheimer's took over his body, and six or seven years later, he died. You see, there really isn't any guarantees. See, wealth has really nothing to do with us, even when it comes to eternity. We don't buy our way into heaven, and we know that. But look at this. I Think of it this way. Will wealth ever guarantee that you're going to have a great marriage? You can't buy a love relationship filled with intimacy. Money's not going to guarantee that you are going to experience the fulfillment of being loved by another and cherished by another. Wealth is never going to guarantee that we're going to have our children grow up and they're going to love God and follow God for the rest of their lives. And they're going to want to be kingdom kids. Wealth can't determine that. I was thinking of even our children and and how we provide so much stuff and activities for them, and yet kids are walking away from their faith in droves these days when they leave leave home. The money and the stuff maybe just gets away in its competition for walking with Christ. But see, Jesus is saying there's no guarantees in life. And to some degree, his audience knew that. They're, they were a bit different than us, even in affluence. They were, they were really, would be quite poor people compared to our day. Most of them would have been involved with agriculture, and their living would have been having to have gardens and fields that would provide for that. And they were dependent on the weather and, and good soil and, and the right temperatures to actually grow a crop to have any money. I, I think back to the farming days. I grew up on a farm. And all of a sudden, a drought or too much rain can wipe out half a crop. Isn't that real? See, Jesus is calling him to something different, and he's saying, don't be anxious. But there's this connection that money has, and we've connected it with anxiety. So we believe that if I just have a big enough wad in my pocket, I don't have anything in there, but when you look up enough, if you go online, you know, we don't carry cash anymore, it's a debit card. And we go online and we look at our balance and we go, I wonder if I have enough. See, and you know what? I think we can understand why we want that bank account big enough. Who wants to live with no money in their account? No money in your wallet. Now, I've got to be careful here. i, I just got to inject, inject kind of a, a path, a little alley here. I, I'm not saying that we never should save here. I just want to set that framework up right away. It doesn't mean that we're not careful with our money. 
Scripture tells us to be wise in there. But in this passage, somewhere Jesus is putting a line that people can cross over and over again. And people can so long for security. And what money gives us, it literally becomes a type of idol in our lives that we have to have. And Jesus is saying, when that line is crossed, when we cross over that and begin to focus our lives about the stuff and the security that he gives us, it is it keeps us away from moving toward righteousness and actually is hostile to the righteousness of God that he desires in our lives. See, God is inviting us to be dependent on him. But people, people keep fighting for independence. Look at verse 32. Here's the world. For the Gentiles, seek after these things. What's the things? It's the plenty, the stuff. The, the barns have to be bigger. But look at the rest of the statement. And your heavenly Father knows that you need them. It's not like we don't need food. We don't need clothes. We do. But the world keeps going down this path and keeps believing that, that we're in charge of our own destiny. The world says that you can control your own fate. And you can do it by the security of acquiring all of the stuff. Security then becomes bound up in the things that I own and the way that I live my life. And having a big wad of cash in my pocket or my bank account. But look at the end of verse 25. Let me put that on the screen. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather in barns, and yet their heavenly Father feeds them. And you not of more value than they? And which of you, being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. See, he's inviting his listeners here to consider a truth that life is more than food and clothing. It's far more than just the material things in life. It's more than the physical world which we live in. He's asking us to consider, what is life really all about? And I think it's easy to get in a rut and live a certain way where we really don't stop and ask ourselves, whoops, ask ourselves the question. Uh, let me give you the application question for your notes. I, I think this is what we need to ask. Is the life that I'm living now what God really wants for me? Is, is it what he wants for me? And catch this. It might have nothing to do with your job. That's secondary. It's the purpose, the meaning in life. Is it really what God wants for me? See, I think the challenge, we've, we've reduced our lives to the accumulation of stuff and even the basic stuff and, and the pursuit of pleasure. But the reality is, is if we, we could be missing out on what God says is real life, 
Frankly, our lives, we could be living kind of a second-rate life. See, see, Jesus is implying that the connection of pursuit and wealth and possessions and where real meaning is found, there's really not a connection. Where is meaning and what is success? Over the years, I've worked a lot with college students and high school students, and particularly in the college, one of the things I've really been disappointed with is how often the students would come and they would imply that their parents are the ones that are telling them, this is church kids, that success is having money and the right job and the right education and the right future. And they've never caught it that success has to be is connected to righteousness, pleasing God, working within the kingdom of heaven. To this day, I remember the office that I was in at the church in, in, in Baxter, and this lady came in and she was struggling with her daughter. And I happened to ask her the question, I said, what if your daughter became a missionary and moved overseas? And the, the, the reaction of this woman was really telling because... She just couldn't imagine that. She didn't want a daughter who would become a poor missionary. It wasn't viewed as successful. Let me give you the truth that applies to that. Number two there, Jesus is inviting us to a new way of life. A different type of success. It's not determined by our possessions and even our most basic physical needs. You see how he drives the question, though, in this passage? He uses creation to drive home the point. He refers to the lilies of the field, the birds, and he goes, doesn't God provide them the basic needs? Food and clothing? He goes, your Father in heaven knows that you need them. You see, he's illustrating from creation, and it reveals actually something, and it's connected here with the Father, who's in heaven. For your notes, a key truth three. Our Heavenly Father, he tells them, is an involved Father. See, the, the Father, his Father, is involved in creation, all that he created. The birds, the flowers, and he's not a passive Father. He's good to his creation. He loves his creation. But how much more will he be involved with you if you are a child of the King, a child of God the Father? See, aren't you not more valuable than they? He tells them. See, when we have a relationship with Christ, when we are God's children, we have a watchful and active and a caring Father. Do we believe that? That our Heavenly Father is involved in our hearts and our lives. Look at another text, verse 27. And which of you, being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? Here's what I said. The truth is, anxiety does no good. Worry does no good. Stewing on it does no good. Now, this is a rhetorical question, but Jesus is reminding them something that they already know. 
See, the truth is, by worry, anxiety, we can't add 15 minutes onto our lives, let alone an hour. Our, our stress over needing security creates no power to prolong our life. Matter of fact, even to get us out of that stress. Jesus knows, and he knows that fear resides in our hearts, and he pushes the point, and he challenges that so much anxiety is not even about the present. Look at verse 34. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. See, Jesus knows that we're prone to fear, that those people in front of him are prone to fear. And he's not only are we worried about the things that go on that are happening right now, he realizes that we look ahead and we begin to speculate. And things begin to snowball. Our fear increases because we look out there. You know, when... Uh, I think back to when my kids began to drive. They, they got their license when it was icy out. And the first time you actually have to let them go and drive on their own when it's ice. Or, or when they come home late. Parents, remember when, you're, when they're out driving and one of you has to wait up until they get home. And for Deanna and I, we would rotate and, and I would wait up the first night and she would go to bed. And then the second night she would go to bed and I would wake, I would stay up. And then the third night I would stay up and she'd go to bed. You get the picture in our home. I was the one that was worrying way too often. See, the challenge, it doesn't do any good. So, so what do we do with anxiety? What do we do with fear? Where well, it tends to snowball. Oh, actually the text points it to it. Well, let me give you an application here. Walking by faith and believing that we have a heavenly, loving Father starts with us moving away from being but what if people. And, and here's, if we're honest, I think what we do is we, we talk ourselves into that it's okay and we kind of throw in the wisdom word. I'm just being wise by not trusting. And when we still struggle with the fear, and we're consumed with the fear. Now, realize, I've I got to throw a text at you, Genesis 3.10. We need to understand where fear and worry, anxiety comes from. It comes from the garden itself. Look at how it reads in 3.10. And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden. This is Adam. And I was afraid. That was the first moment where fear and worry, anxiety comes in because I was naked and I hid myself. But in light of that statement, you understand, something changed. Fear and worry was introduced into mankind. But let me put up a couple statements for you. Before sin, before the fall, they were dependent on God and had no fear. They were not afraid being, when they were dependent on the Father. But after sin, 
they became independent and autonomous from God, and fear began to rule. See, we live in a fallen world where we become anxious and we keep trying to worry, thinking that it's going to solve something. And then we go with the what ifs. What if my kids might get sick if I put them in the nursery? What if my husband or my wife stops loving me? The reaction usually to that in the marriage world is begin to try to control, clamp down, demand. Because there's that shakiness going on. Or or we don't have enough money in the account. What do we do? Anxiety, we begin to learn how to control and respond in an inappropriate way. And, and, And the list can go on and on. What if, what if, what if. And I think the challenge, we, there, there's preachers out there that, that basically think, say this, just think positive thoughts. Okay? Just get rid of the fear. Get up in the morning and think positive. Today's going to start a new day, and, and I'm just going to think positive. The power of positive thinking. And no more fear. It's all going to go away. And you go, no, I, I, I don't think that's a biblical response at all. Let me give you the scriptures, actually, that the text points out. The path of worry and fear and anxiety. Look at verse 33. But seek first. He's talking about worry, anxiety. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. That is the pathway. Fill in your notes there, the fifth truth. Moving away. From anxiety and worry starts with living our lives for the kingdom of God. See, you guys are worried about money. But now, turn from that. Seek the kingdom. A new way to live. And then when he does that, he goes, I'm going to take care of you. So what does seeking the kingdom of God mean? Well, one, in the context of this, one of the things has to be this, that we actually believe that we have an active and good and gracious Father. And as we are His children, that He takes care of us, that He's present with us. And as we participate in His will, we seek Him, and we get to know Him. Do you understand, when, we get to, when you get to know somebody, you begin to trust them. And that's what needs to happen with God. We need to know him so he becomes trustworthy, which he is. Think of the Lord's Prayer. Thy will be done. We know him so well, we go, okay, God, you're in control. See, that's a dependency on him being in charge and in control. Seeking the kingdom also means that we're not seeking our agenda, we're seeking his agenda. And we're just not satisfied with just a nice, safe place and where nothing happens to me. See, the kingdom means becoming active in his mission to invite the world to know him. To help people who are far from God, taking their hand and helping them connect with God. That's part of seeking the kingdom. People who are trapped in fear and enslaved to all kinds of stuff where they can get to know a loving father. That's seeking the kingdom. 
It's about the great commandment as well, to love him with our hearts, souls, and minds. See, the answer is not to sit over here in fear or just think positive thoughts when worry comes along. It's really to go after God and his kingdom. But here's where i got to stop, and I need to circle back to an issue that we need to know and understand. See, trusting in God and not being anxious, it's not automatic. I, it's, I know it's not for me. Now, maybe it's for you, you got it all figured out, but I know it's not for me. Uh, even Israel, the crowd that he's talking to, do you remember that they did a Passover every year? You know what the purpose of the Passover was? To call them back to remember how good God was took them out of Egypt, put them into the promised land. He was going to be this, their savior. They were going to understand, get to know him. And yet they would shrink back in fear all the time. And in this, where they were at right now in the Sermon on the Mount, they were under the Roman rule. And they hated it. And God, when are you going to get us out of this? See, those are the circumstances. So, so what do we do? more than just think positive thoughts. Well, well, see, here's the deal. We have to have an object, and it's the person of God himself. And and I want to just briefly mention a passage this morning, Lamentations chapter 3. And it is a passage that if you want to ever encourage people, you need to have it underlined in your Bible. You need, If you've got your Bible on your cell phone, you need to highlight it and, and have this where you can get to it at some point because it is so valuable when you're looking to try to encourage someone else. Look at how it reads, Lamentations chapter 3. Peace has been stripped away, and I have been forgotten what prosperity is. And I cry out, my splendor is gone. Everything I had hoped for from the Lord is lost. And the thought of my suffering and homelessness is bitter beyond words. And I will never forget this awful time as I grieve over my loss. Not too happy at this point. But look how it goes in 21. Yet I still dare to hope when I remember this. The faithful love of the Lord never ends. His mercies never cease. See, what is the object of remembering? It's God. Great is his faithfulness. His mercies begin afresh. They're new each morning. And I say to myself, the Lord is my inheritance. Therefore, I will hope in him. There's the object of our hope is the Father. And the Lord is good to those who depend on him. You see, God wants us to depend on him to those who search for him. So it is good to wait quietly for the salvation from the Lord. See, the challenge when you try to help people who are discouraged, it does no good to bark a command that says, stop it, 
Don't be anxious. But understand as the Holy Spirit authored this text, it shows that God wants to come in and be that entity that really deals with worry and and being anxious. The God wants to feed our faith. And so it's written that it reminds us of the good character of the Father. That when we place ourselves back into His hands, that's where hope is found. We have a trustworthy Father who loves so much that He desires to give us mercy every day. And I don't know if you caught this, but He gives us mercy one day at a time. And there's a deep connection back to our text today. Don't worry about tomorrow. You got enough stuff going on today. So the future, put it away. Don't worry about it. But why? Where's it connected to this text? It's this, that God comes in and he gives us mercy, enough mercy for one day at a time. One day. He doesn't bundle up the mercies and says, throw them at can and go, now you're good to go for the next six months to a year. He doesn't do that. It's going to cover everything. All my worries is, you know, those what ifs. What ifs? It's all going to go away? He goes, no. You see what he's doing there? He's saying, I want to meet you every day. When you're going through hard times, I'm not gonna I'm not just gonna get rid of it. I want to meet you day by day. And he gives us enough mercy one day at a time to survive. Even in those very hard times. One day at a time. Why does he do that? Why doesn't he just give us enough mercy to last for a year? It's this he wants us to depend on him. Otherwise, if he took it all away, gave us enough mercy for the next year, you know what we'd do? We'd forget about him. And we just, okay. And he just says, no, day by day, I want to be the object that you're seeking. Come to me every day, and I will give you mercy. And you know what? There's probably people here that are going through stuff in this room where you're anxious, you're worried, and then there's a lot of struggles in your life. And this is what the pathway is, is that you get up in the morning and you say, God, I need your mercy today. Would you give me enough mercy for today to get through the day? And he's promised that he will be faithful in doing that. But you need to be able to share that with other people as well. When people are fearful, and it's, that's, that's the flesh, it rises up. But we need to point people to the hope that we have a Father who cares, who loves, who's compassionate, who's involved. My Heavenly Father is involved in our lives when those moments of fear and worry come. And that is such a blessing and an act of grace toward us. God's mercies are new every day. Let's stand and pray.